0: It's wonderful to listen to the Biden administration and to, and to Joe Biden, because uh, there's so much that they want to do together with us, uh, for, from security, NATO, uh, to, to climate change. And uh,
1: it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's a breath of fresh air. Ah, a breath of fresh air. I'll take it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got to feeling something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. To the left me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm stuck in
0: From the middle
1: From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaiis, KAKU. Oh, can I come to, Can I go to Hawaii? In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Jamesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's am nine fifty. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from brandblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. As you doing, did you survive the weekend?
0: Yes, I survived the weekend, but it is quite hot here in Los Angeles. There's a big extreme heat advisory here in California and across the West. So everybody, take care. Be yeah, careful.
1: it's really bad. And not just here, unfortunately, in California, but all around the Southwest. Uh, Phoenix is going to be hitting some record temps this week. Uh, it's almost as if someone like you should have warned us about this. I don't know, a decade or two ago, Desi Toyan.
0: <laughs> you mean like I did a decade or two uh, for now with the yeah, Green News report?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Told you. Sorry. Well, yeah, you should be. Uh, as California, by the way, prepares to open back up for business in the middle of a heat wave at uh, 100% capacity on Tuesday, the nation is crossing a grim milestone today. Reuters is reporting that the U.S., by their count at least, has now crossed the milestone of 600,000 dead in the U.S. from COVID-19, even as much of the nation begins to return to normal. And uh, though the numbers are looking good here in California, I I do try to watch both infection and death rates, uh, those numbers, very closely here and around the country. And I have noticed a very small uptick. In both of those numbers, both infections and deaths over the past several days across the country. So California is doing OK. The Much of the country is doing OK. But there is a little uptick in those numbers that I'm watching. I'm hoping it's just an anomaly or some noise in the data. But it is worth keeping an eye on as folks are tossing away their masks. They're crowding into bars and restaurants again even as a huge portion of the nation remains unvaccinated at this point. So, boy, I hope we're not rushing into this too quickly. I guess on this I am very, very conservative, perhaps. Uh, In any event, we're keeping our eyes on it. At the same time, over the past week, we've been spending a lot of time on this program, day in and day out, it seems, on the domestic woes and disasters here at home, particularly in Congress Uh, When it comes to the, uh, you know, the emergency necessity of election reform at the federal level in order to counter the onslaught of GOP vote suppression bills that are moving quickly through state legislatures all around the country, and uh, the need to reform the filibuster in the U.S. Senate in order to move any of that much-needed election reform legislation through Congress, and, of course, the intransigence of one Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, preventing all of it from happening. Also, on the domestic front, as revealed late last week, we learned that the Trump administration was secretly subpoenaing phone, email, and text records from Democratic lawmakers, including California Congressman and perceived Trump enemies, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell of the House Judiciary Committee, back in 2018, as they were investigating the Trump administration's various abuses of power. Frankly, it's a rather shocking. Uh, unprecedented, in fact, uh, abuse of power by the Department of Justice and just a stunning turn of events, given that at the very same time that was going on in 2018, the White House was busy blocking congressional subpoenas for documents and testimonies, uh, testimony from the executive branch agencies under the premise that such congressional oversight somehow violated the Constitution's sacrosanct separation of powers between the two co-equal branches, the legislative and the executives. But at that very same time, while the White House was claiming one thing when it came to protecting their own political interests, they were doing the exact opposite when it came to what they would call spying on their political opponents. Anyway, I hope to talk much more about that uh, with a number of guests on the program this week in the coming few days. And I'll be happy to talk to you folks about it in a little bit here on the show if you'd like to ring in. Our phone number is 818-985-5735. I hope to uh, open the phones up to that and or anything else that you want to talk about shortly. But uh, with Biden, Joe Biden now still overseas on his first foreign trip as president, uh, president there are a number of foreign affairs uh, issues that I want to hit today. And, uh, and then some of the other domestic issues from over the weekend as well, if I can get to it. Um, so, Let's jump right in here before we get to your calls a little bit later. Uh, Let's start with the big, rather historic, in fact, news out of Israel over the weekend. Now, don't get too excited about this because, frankly, the new guy in this case is arguably farther to the right than the previous guy, Netanyahu. But at least the new guy's governing coalition includes folks that are to the left of Israel's disgraced, indicted, and now former— Longtime prime minister. Israel's parliament on Sunday, according to AP, narrowly approved a new coalition government, ending the historic 12 year rule of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and sending the polarizing leader into the opposition. Naftali Bennett, a uh, former ally of Netanyahu turned rival, became prime minister on Sunday after the 60-59 vote in the Israeli Knesset. Promising to try to heal a divided nation, Bennett will preside over a diverse and fragile coalition uh, comprised of eight different parties with deep ideological differences. The vote ended a two-year cycle of political paralysis in Israel in which the country held four deadlocked elections. Those votes focused largely on Netanyahu's divisive rule and his Fitness to remain in office while on trial for corruption charges. To his critics, Netanyahu has become a polarizing and autocratic leader who used divide and rule tactics to aggravate the many rifts in Israeli society. Hmm, that sounds somewhat familiar. Those include tensions between Jews and Arabs and within the Jewish majority, between his religious and nationalist base and his more secular and dovish opponents. Outside the Knesset, hundreds of protesters watching the vote on a large screen erupted into applause when the new government was approved. Thousands of people, many waving Israeli flags, celebrated in central Tel Aviv's Rabin Square. President Joe Biden quickly congratulated the new government, saying in a statement after a G7 meeting in England wrapped up, quote, I look forward to working with Prime Minister Bennett to strengthen all aspects of the close and enduring relationship between our two nations. He said his administration is fully committed to working with the new government, quote, to advance security, stability and peace for Israelis, Palestinians and people throughout the broader region, he said. Bennett's office, Now, Prime Minister Bennett's office said that he uh, later spoke by phone with Biden, thanking the U.S. leader for his warm wishes and his longstanding commitment to Israel's security. Three of the eight parties in this new government coalition, including Bennett's Yamina, are headed by former Netanyahu allies who share his hardline ideology but had deep personal disputes with him. Bennett 49 years old, as a former chief of staff to Netanyahu, whose small party is populated with religious Jews and West Bank settlers. Bennett, an observant Jew himself, noted that the ancient Jewish people twice lost their homeland in biblical times due to bitter infighting. This time, he says, at the decisive moment, we have taken responsibility to continue on in this way. More elections, more hatred, more vitriolic posts on Facebook— he said, is just not an option. Therefore, we stopped the train a moment before it battled, uh, it barreled into the abyss. That, you know, uh, just as I say, sounds familiar. Bennett is a millionaire, former high-tech entrepreneur. He faces a tough test, now maintaining this coalition of parties from the political left, right, and center. Uh, the coalition includes a small Islamist faction, That is making history as the first Arab party to sit in a coalition, Uh, and they agree on little beyond their opposition to Netanyahu at this point. They're likely to pursue a modest agenda, therefore seeking to reduce tensions with the Palestinians and maintain good relations with the U.S. without launching any major initiatives. Bennett said, we will forge forward on that which we agree, and there is much we agree on, transportation, education, and so on, and what separates us will leave to the side, he said. He also promised a new page in relations with Israel's Arab sector. Israel's Arab citizens make up about 20 percent of the nation's population but have suffered uh, from discrimination, poverty, lack of opportunities. Netanyahu has often tried to portray Arab politicians as terrorist sympathizers, though he also courted the very same Arab party in a failed effort to remain in power after the March 23rd elections. So, sure, they're terrorist sympathizers unless they are willing to work with. Benjamin Yet- uh, Netanyahu.
0: <laughs> well, so essentially, we're saying that bipartisanship may actually have a chance of working in Israel. Uh, yeah,
1: in Israel. Yeah, in
0: Israel. We after to... they cut out the guy that was preventing yeah. all any bipartisanship from going on.
1: Yes, we have to now turn to Israel to see how we can all come together so and work together,
0: together on a common in goal. a common.
1: Peaceful manner.
0: What a concept.
1: We are looking at you, Israel Bennett, uh, who, uh, like Netanyahu, opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state, made little mention of the Palestinians beyond threatening a tough response to violence. He also vowed, like Netanyahu, to oppose U.S.-led efforts to restore the international nuclear accord with Iran He opposes that. See, I told you not to get too excited about this guy. Uh, But he also thanked Joe Biden for his support of Israel. He promised to take a different approach than Netanyahu, who alienated much of the Democratic Party here in the U.S. through an antagonistic relationship with then-President Obama and and his close ties with former President Trump. While Bennett's speech was conciliatory, Netanyahu's, on the other hand, was confrontational over the weekend. He accused Bennett of abandoning Israel's right-wing electorate and joining weak leftists to become prime minister. He vowed, I will lead you in a daily struggle against the evil and dangerous leftist government in order to topple it. God willing, it will happen a lot faster than what you think. Said Netanyahu. So because they don't agree with them, they are evil and dangerous and leftist. See how hard uh, how, how autocracy works, how hard right autocracy works. Just demonize anyone you don't like, even, by the way, if they are to your right, call them leftist, call them evil, call them dangerous. In the opposition, Netanyahu now remains head of the largest party in parliament. The new coalition is a patchwork of small and mid-sized parties that could collapse if any of its members decide to bolt at any time. Uh, The driving force behind the coalition is Yair Lapid, a political centrist. He will become prime minister in two years, according to this deal, in a rotation agreement with Bennett. That is, if the government lasts that long. We shall see. Netanyahu's place in history, nonetheless, is secure. He's been uh, prime minister for a total of 15 years. That is more than any other prime minister, including the country's founding father, David Ben-Gurion, But his reputation as a political magician has now faded, it seems, particularly since he was indicted in 2019 for fraud, breach of trust and accepting bribes, and yet still hoped to continue serving as prime minister. He refused calls to step down. Instead, he lashed out at the media, the judiciary, law enforcement. He went so far as to accuse his political opponents of orchestrating an attempted coup. Again. Sound familiar? Netanyahu remains popular nonetheless among the hardline nationalists in the country who dominate Israeli politics, but he could soon face a leadership challenge from within his own party. A less polarizing leader of the Likud party would stand a good chance of assembling the right-wing coalition that Netanyahu had hoped but failed to form. So it's a precarious moment right now for, Israelis gov- for Israel's government. But they now have a new one in any event, and we will see if they can deliver and if they can survive as the angry right and its disgraced, deposed leader now vows to tear them down. So you are, of course, welcome to ring in on that if you have any thoughts as well on that story. 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Feel free to derail me at any time today. Uh, But next, let's head to China today, where a somewhat chilling overnight scoop by CNN of a, a a potential leak at a nuclear power plant has been rattling a few nerves today. And for understandable reasons, I should add, overnight, we learned that the U.S. government, according to CNN's scoop, has spent the past week assessing a report of a leak At a Chinese nuclear power plant after a French company that part owns and helps operate the plant warned of a, quote, imminent radiological threat. That, according to U.S. officials and documents reviewed by CNN, the warning included an accusation that the Chinese safety authority was raising the acceptable limits for radiation detection outside of the Taishan nuclear power plant in Guangdong, Um, It's the Guangdong province in order to avoid having to shut it down. This is according to a letter from the French company to the U.S. Department of Energy that was obtained by CNN. Despite the alarming notification from Framatome, that's the French company in question, the Biden administration believes the facility is not yet at a, quote, crisis level, according to one of the sources. U.S. officials have deemed the situation does not currently pose a severe threat to workers at the plant or to the Chinese public. It is unusual that a foreign company, however, would unilaterally reach out to the American government for help when its Chinese state-owned partner is yet to acknowledge that a problem even exists at all. The scenario could put the U.S. in a complicated situation if the leak uh, should the leak continue. We're talking about the radiological leak at this point, uh, or if it becomes more severe without being fixed. CNN reports that the concern was significant enough that the National Security Council held multiple meetings last week as they monitored the situation, including two at the deputy level and another gathering at the assistant secretary level on Friday. The Biden administration has discussed the situation with the French government reportedly and their own experts at the Department of Energy. The U.S. has also been in contact with the Chinese government, according to U.S. officials. The extent of that contact, however, is unclear at this hour. The U.S. government declined to explain the assessment, but officials... At the NSC, the National Security Council and at the State Department and the Department of Energy insisted that if there were any risk to the Chinese public, the U.S. would be required to make it known under current treaties related to nuclear accidents. Well, I hope so. I hope that is the case. The French company here, uh, Framatome, had reached out to the U.S. in order to obtain a waiver that would allow them to share American technical assistance in order to resolve the issue at the Chinese plant. So whatever was going on, whatever was going wrong, whatever is going wrong, they had to get the approval from uh, from the U.S. in order to use whatever techniques were needed in order to fix whatever the problem actually is. There are only two reasons why such a waiver would be granted, and one is, quote, an imminent radiological threat. That's the same verbiage that was used in that June 8 memo that has now raised quite a few alarms. The memo claims that the Chinese limit on allowable radiation outside of the plant has been increased to exceed the French standards standards. Uh, In order to, well, sort of make it all legal, I guess. It remains unclear uh, how that particular limit compares to the U.S. limits at this point, as we're all sort of trying to read between the lines here of the statements uh, from the officials, from the memos, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely a fluid situation here, and it's very unclear exactly what is going on because, of course, the Chinese are famously very secretive on stuff like this, and they don't like to make it known that they have any problems. So I think it's incredibly troubling that they have uh, apparently raised the legally allowable limits yeah. of radiation leaks for the area, and uh, you know, even though they say there's no danger to Chinese citizens that live nearby. I don't think anybody really has any reason to trust the Chinese government on this.
1: Well, no. Uh, of course, I don't have the reason to trust any government anywhere on anything. <laughs> but that said, uh, this comes as the letter uh, from the the company comes as tensions between Beijing and Washington remain high while the G7 leaders meet this weekend uh, in the U.K. with uh, with with China, an important topic of discussion between them. More on that in a moment. But uh, as of now, <clears throat> there are no indications that uh, the, the reports of a leak were discussed at any of the high-level meetings at that G7 summit. Um, the uh, French utility company, Electric, uh, Electricity de France, EDF, said in a statement that it has been informed of an increased concentration of, quote, noble gases in the primary circuit of reactor number one at the Taishan nuclear power plant. EDF holds a 30 percent stake uh, in uh, in the company, the uh, the French company that's working with China here. Uh, EDF says the presence of certain noble gases in the primary circuit is a known phenomenon. It's studied and provided for in the reactor operating procedures, but they did not elaborate on the gas levels. So uh, what what I am able to glean from all of this is that there appears to be some sort of cracks uh, within the, the the power plant, within the casing around The fuel supply. Now, there are an additional three containment barriers between the fuel supply, the rods and the atmosphere itself. So even if there are some cracks, some micro cracks that is allowing these gases to get out, um, there are other containment barriers that should be in place to keep that uh, from getting out, from getting outside of the plant and to the uh, to the public, to the nearby public. Uh, And this is uh, the city of Taishan. uh, Taishan, I'm sure I'm screwing that up, has a population of nearly a million. It's situated in the southeast of the country in the Guangdong province Uh, that is home to one hundred and twenty six million residents. Uh, the, with a GDP of 1.6 trillion, it's comparable to that of Russia and South Korea just on its own. So there is uh, reason to be concerned. Um, the uh, memo here notes that uh, this uh, regulatory limit that would otherwise that they keep raising because if they didn't, they would otherwise have to shut the reactor down when the limits are exceeded. So they've raised it, and the the, uh, memo notes that this limit was established at a level consistent with what is dictated by the French Safety Authority, but, quote, due to the increasing number of failures, China's Safety Authority has since revised the limit to more than double the initial release, quote, which in turn increases off-site risk to the public and to on-site workers. Now, during the worst of the 2011 nuclear meltdown at the Daiichi nuclear uh, power plant in Fukushima, Japan, after it was hit by an earthquake and a tsunami, uh, we covered that very closely and we turned with some frequency to the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists for an independent Uh, Look at what was actually going on when officials at that nuclear plant in Japan were less than forthcoming about what, you know, what the problem actually was. Well, today, Ed Lyman, the director of nuclear power safety at the UCS, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists in in, uh, Washington, D.C., he tweeted that he was for now, quote, reserving judgment on this matter, quote, Pending more information. But at first glance, he notes it sounds a bit overhyped. He goes on in his Twitter thread to suggest that small cracks in the fuel housing is not unheard of and such failures are, quote, expected during normal operation. But it sounds like he and others are watching it closely, as will we, as more information uh, becomes available. All of that said, I I have to say I'm happy about two things. And Desi Doyen, you mentioned how, well, troubling it is that this is going on and we can't know what is going on with the Chinese government. Well, one uh, that gives me some comfort is that a French company here is working with this, uh, working on this plant with China which may get us a bit more transparency than we might otherwise expect to get from China themselves. And, uh, two, that we have an administration in the White House with both scientific expertise and who is willing to deal with other nations to help solve and or monitor potential problems like this. Who doesn't have an interest necessarily in covering them up or lying about them or just basically telling us things that we can't trust at all because, you know, it comes from an administration who doesn't actually care about science.
0: What a concept, an administration that is interested in solving problems transparently, at least as transparently as possible, and making sure that, you know, we can actually deal with the problems as they come up. And instead of, like you say, covering it up or pretending something is not happening when it is actually happening.
1: Crazy idea, I know. Well, to that end, uh, Joe Biden, it seems, uh, has been very warmly welcomed over the past few days during his meetings with counterparts in the G7 in Britain and uh, NATO meetings. According to Politico, over the weekend, uh, Joe Biden Had many messages for U.S. allies during his first foreign trip as president, but perhaps none were more pronounced than this. I am not Donald Trump. (laughs) Biden's predecessor spent four years disparaging world leaders in public and on Twitter, accusing their countries of freeloading off the U.S., he pulled out of international agreements. He refused to sign others. He scoffed at the transatlantic alliances that served as a bedrock of U.S. foreign policy in the post-World War II era. So many leaders at the uh, latest G7 meeting, according to Politico, including those from Germany, France, Canada, uh, seemed simply eager to move past Donald Trump this week, so much so that they greeted Biden like an old friend, even when he was not. As the world leaders walked along St. Eve's Bay just before the summit began, French President Emmanuel Macron, who had never met Biden before, put his arms around Biden, the two walked arm in arm. They engaged in a uh, animated conversation including talk about the ways to make democracies more effective for the middle class, which is one of Biden's favorite topics. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, one of Trump's favorite targets, said uh, just after Biden arrived at the summit, quote, being able to meet Joe Biden is obviously important because he stands for the commitment to multilateralism which we were missing in recent years. Even prior Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson, who was closer to Donald Trump than any of the other G7 leaders, even he declared that everyone is, quote, absolutely thrilled to see Biden. He called their meeting, quote, a breath of fresh air. Later, when reporters asked if that comment was a criticism of Trump, the prime minister's spokesperson said it was simply a reflection of their shared interests of security and climate change. Well, that's good news, particularly coming from a conservative British prime minister. But uh, Donald, uh, see, I've already done it. Joe Biden was talking quite a bit about climate change, as were the rest of the folks at the G7 and at the subsequent NATO meetings, which have, uh, I think, already uh, begun. Um, he was, you know, talking about the dangers of our climate crisis. But he also, by the way, when he's talking about uh, when Boris Johnson was talking about the importance of t- discussing climate change, he could also be talking about, you know, the climate in the multilateral meetings like G like the G7, uh, where Trump famously stormed out. During uh, one G7 summit in uh, Canada about three years ago.
0: Yes. And I think one of the most important things that Biden reiterated was that the U.S. remains committed to the NATO alliance, which is something that uh, Trump was very keen on undermining because apparently that is something that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin would like to undermine NATO. So it was important for Biden to reiterate and recommit to the, the NATO alliance uh, just from a foreign policy standpoint.
1: And from all reports He is doing so. And uh, the G7 folks, the NATO NATO folks, are apparently delighted about it. For example, the G7 countries are organizing no less than eight committees to work on policy issues throughout the summit, including a global corporate tax rate. An agreement was reached among the G7 to implement a 15 percent minimum rate. So that businesses can't, you know, just move their uh, uh, their companies in name to other countries in order to avoid taxes. They've got working groups on technology, trade, travel, the pandemic. Uh, Those working groups generally did not even happen at all when Donald Trump was president at these summits. Instead, Trump was the disruptor. He scoffed at all of these international institutions. He undermined the trade deals. He questioned U.S. military commitments and bases. He backed Brexit in part to delegitimize the European Union, which I guess he hates more than anyone. He constantly criticized countries for not spending enough on defense. He lodged tariffs on European exports, which I will remind you, since the Trump administration administration spent so many years lying to you about it, uh, tariffs are not fees paid by those foreign countries. They are import tariffs. They are paid by Americans. They are taxes on goods that are brought in from those countries on which the U.S. has set tariffs, as Trump unilaterally did, even with our longtime trading partners. And yes, that costs Americans, not Europeans, not the Chinese, not the Canadians. It costs Americans uh, money. Uh, After Biden was elected, foreign leaders and diplomats proclaimed uh, quickly that the new American president would bring back something that had been missing for four years, normalcy. European Council President uh, uh, Charles Michel told uh, Biden during a video summit earlier this year, America is back. We are happy you are back, he added. Nonetheless, some leaders are skeptical that U.S. politics, with its deep partisan divisions at home, uh, they are skeptical that the politics here will remain stable enough for the country to return to its place as a reliable global power. Le Monde, uh, the leading French newspaper, said in an editorial after the election that Trumpism was not an accident but a lasting heritage of American politics. Alexander uh, Vershbow, a former deputy secretary of NATO, noted, quote, the Allies do have lingering doubts about the forces that produced Trump's election in 2016, and they're wondering whether these forces are gone for good. Uh, little secret, they're not. They're not gone for good. They're not gone by a long shot at this point. Vershbo said, I think this concern is real that the Trumpian uh, trend tendencies in the U.S. could return full bore in the midterms or in the next presidential election. Yeah, so they should be concerned. They should be very concerned, especially with the efforts underway right now right now, to undermine democracy itself here in the U.S. by those forces that they are so worried about. That would be Republicans at the state level and in Congress by both voter suppression and much less reported, by the way, on all of this in these laws that you're seeing uh, seeing being passed around the country to suppress uh, voters. That's getting a lot of attention. What is getting much less attention is the fact that many of these laws also include new ways that Republicans are giving themselves ways to actually overturn election results themselves for virtually any reason that they like. This is something that is very troubling, and it's not nearly enough covered in all of this. I hope that we will be doing so uh, as much as we can in the days ahead. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Biden has tried to uh, nurture the idea that he is Trump's inverse on the global stage. He's rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. He's backed an attempt to revive the Iran nuclear deal that Trump pulled out of. He's speaking repeatedly about the importance of alliances, international diplomacy, emphasizing America's commitment to allies and partners and has reassured leaders that the U.S. backs NATO's doctrine of collective defense and would aid a member state in the face of Russian aggression. Still, there are worries uh, about America's policies under Biden. Uh, Countries are concerned that he's pulling out of Afghanistan before September 11th. They're concerned about the lack of urgency over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that's being built to bring gas from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Baltic Sea at a time when um, they ought to be quite concerned about climate change. They say they're concerned about climate change. But Desi Doyen, on our Green News report last week, you pointed out that the G7 has spent more money on, uh, is it just coal or is it fossil fuels in, in total than now, on No, this is fossil
0: fuels in total. Yeah. The, the, the G7 has announced that they are going to phase out financing of coal plants, and they said that they're going to phase out the burning of coal entirely, but... Right before that, last year, yeah. uh they actually gave 50 billion dollars more to fossil fuel projects than they did to clean energy projects. Yeah. So while the rhetoric came this week in saying, "Yes, we're going to phase out coal and we're going to, you know, make some nice words and rhetoric about, you know, going to net-, net zero and cutting our emissions in half by 2030." That's all well and good. That is rhetoric. However, compared to what they did last year, that 50 billion dollars yeah. difference in fossil fuel projects is kind of a big deal.
1: As you- There's reason to remain skeptical of all of these governments, as I said earlier. Uh, You can give us a call on this or anything else you want to talk about. 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Heather Conley, who served as a deputy assistant secretary of state during the George W. Bush administration, said that, well, at least there's no longer a feeling of complete dread Before a NATO or G7 summit or fearing that the meetings would upend U.S. policy, she says there was much more energy devoted to managing or mitigating former President Donald Trump before, during and after these uh, summit meetings than there was on the actual summit agenda when he was in power says this doesn't mean that US allies agree with the Biden administration on all of their initiatives but these meetings will be predictable, stable and possibly productive she said well there you go and that of course in and of itself is a welcome change after the last hellish four years at least in my opinion you may see it differently. If so, give me a call, 818-985-5735. I always do, as you know, like to put the people who disagree with me on any particular thing up in front of the line, 818-985-KPFK. And on that encouraging note, let me take a quick break here. I've got some domestic news uh, from over the weekend that I'd like to try to get to as well. But you're welcome to throw me off completely, throw off my trajectory as much as as you like if you'd like to ring in on any of this. 818 818- 985 5735 to share your thoughts over your public airwaves. Where, as I always like to say, you may want to use them before you lose them entirely at this point. 818 985 KPFK. Your calls and more. Next on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Yeah, welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We will get to your calls in a moment. 818-985-KPFK. 818-985-5735. Now is the time to ring in, like I say, if you'd like to throw me off of my trajectory. Uh, But this one I can't let go. Uh, Speaking of winning, (laughs) a sort of reality winner. Uh, The former national security agent contractor who was jailed for leaking secrets about Russian hacking during the 2016 election. uh, She has finally been released from prison, according to her lawyer on Monday. The 29 year old winner was sentenced to more than five years in prison in 2018 after she leaked classified information to The Intercept. That's a news outlet about Russia's attempt to hack voter registration databases during the 2016 presidential election. She pleaded guilty to leaking a classified report that detailed the Russian government's efforts to penetrate a Florida-based voter registration software supplier. A hack that we still do not know the full extent of, by the way, shamefully enough. Had it not been for reality winners whistleblowing, we may not have known about any of it at this point, even the uh, small bit of information that we do have. At the time of her sentencing, after she pled guilty, it was uh, she was given the longest ever such sentence for a federal crime involving leaks to the media. Uh, Her lawyers filed a formal petition for commutation with the Department of Justice back in February of 2020 with uh, Donald Trump's administration saying she had suffered enough. She called on then-President Trump to, quote, do the right thing. Well, good luck with that reality. Uh, Trump did not commute winner's sentence. Uh, He did say on Twitter in 2018 that her punishment was, quote, so unfair But apparently it was so unfair that he did absolutely nothing about it while pardoning and commuting his own personal friends who committed multiple felonies to enrich themselves, to hide crimes that they committed, to hide crimes committed by Trump and his campaign, and far worse uh, by way of comparison to Winner, who gained nothing from her so-called crime of alerting the nation to the fact that a foreign country had had attempted to interfere in an American election. Everything that uh, Trump did pardon others for was about themselves. It was about committing crime. Winner was trying to do something for her nation, misguided or otherwise. The former NSA translator was released today for good behavior. She's still in custody amid the residential re-entry process. Her lawyer said, um, writing that they are relieved and hopeful Her release is not a product of the pardon or compassionate release process, but rather earned from exemplary behavior while incarcerated. The AP notes the former Air Force translator worked as a contractor at the National Security Agency office in Augusta, Georgia, when she printed a classified report and left the building with it tucked into her pantyhose before later mailing it to The Intercept, which published it allowing for federal officials to figure out who had carried out the leak. 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Let me go to to Mike in L.A. Hey, Mike, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
2: Hi, Brad. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, what's up? Quick comment on the point that you made earlier about how the right I guess in Israel, mm-hmm. with the news segment, that they're, you know, demonizing their opponents and whatnot. Right. And, you know, just in general, not necessarily about Israel, but just in general, it seems to be a common tactic that a lot of the right-wingers take. Yep. You know, I always I always look at that. I mean, basically what that is, it's a logical fallacy. It's called ad hominem. Mm-hmm. And basically what they're doing, they can't win... The debate on the issues, you know,
1: mm-hmm. so what
2: they then do is they attack the the person, yep, um, rather than actually going after the argument because they, and that's always a sign. Like I said, that it's an encouraging sign that they're losing mm. because if they have to resort, I mean, that's basically a pretty childish tactic, <laughs> right? That's like you're in an argument on the kinder kindergarten playground. Yeah. And the guy can't win, so he, you know, calls you basically a poopy face or something. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's so ridiculous. In, in technical terms it's a logical fallacy it's called ad
1: hominem mm-hmm. and, and no listen and, i i'm you know i'm glad that you pointed out that you see it as an encouraging sign i hope you're right about that but the notion i mean in this case uh in in israel with netanyahu for him to call this guy who had who had once been his chief of staff by the way who had arguably right. been more ideological to the right than him to call him evil and a dangerous Leftist is just ridiculous, right. but I guess that sort of demonization actually works, right. Mike.
2: Right. Well, that's you know that's kind of analogous here to, you yep. know they called Joe Biden a socialist as if as if socialism is bad. You know stuff right. like having a fire department. You know people that people that demonize socialists don't even know basic like political science socialism right. you know like the difference between socialism and communism or whatever but socialism you know every society has has elements of socialism we have plenty of elements of socialism like I said you know public schools
1: of course we of course we do, department, department.
2: we do mike but uh, yeah, the military you yeah. know, we all chip in of so course we can all have Stuff,
1: yep, you know of course we do and yet uh you know that's something they they just don't seem to find time to mention on fox news or right. the other stations that are farther to the right that's mike right. i gotta i gotta that's jump right. off because i got a bunch of people to get to i appreciate your call and your excellent thoughts thank you sir uh 818-985-kpfk is our phone number let's go to justin also in la hey justin welcome to the broadcast sir oh justin are you there Okay, Hello? we lost you. Oh, Justin. Are you there? J- okay, I think I'm going to have to come back to uh, to Justin. Let me see if I can figure this out. Okay, let's go to eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. Did I just uh, we lost Justin? Justin, if you get this, call us back. We couldn't hear you for whatever reason, or you couldn't hear us. Let me go to uh, Naomi in Santa Monica. Hey, Naomi, welcome to the broadcast. What's up?
3: Hi, hi, Brad. I was wondering if we could go around about this voting suppression thing a different way. Yep, Fight combating it. I was wondering if we could go after or if we if there was any mechanism to go after the Republican Party itself. How so? Funding because they're behaving like a fascistic organization, not mm-hmm. what we would consider a political party. I mean, I'm just wondering if legally if, if that could happen. I'm, it's just, I'm just thinking.
1: You mean a, you mean a, like a lawsuit of some sort against the Republican yeah, yeah, Party to, for... To,
3: to, to, an inju- for an injunction to stop them from funding these people mm-hmm. who are trying to tear down the country.
1: Well, yes. And uh, Naomi, the good news is that pretty much each and every one of these uh, voter suppression laws that has been passed in, uh, you know, a number of states, I think uh, last I saw Brennan Center had it up to something like 22 states. But in each case, uh, pretty much every state, there have been lawsuits filed Almost immediately, uh, by uh, groups like the uh, NAACP, so voting rights groups.
3: We shouldn't have to do that, though. We should be able to well, stop them with one fell swoop. I I believe we shouldn't have to do that. That's
1: well, but that's the, not that's how it watch. works, Naomi. That's yeah. not how it works. You gotta you you can sue against a specific law, but you can't sue mm-hmm. overall to say Republicans are bad. Uh, but that but is.
3: The, but, the, but, it, but, yeah. but but the question is, how is this this thing this supposed party functioning is it functioning like a what we would call a political party is supposed to function now
1: uh, the republican party you're talking it about
3: it doesn't seem to be no that's right it doesn't seem to be it doesn't it, it they're they're supporting all these mushuganas <laughs> who are trying to overthrow the you know yes. who you're putting in crazy people and you know they're the they're the they're the the back reason why this is all happening because it's being allowed because their funding source is the Republican Party.
1: Well, that's right. But listen, yes, they are a political party. They are a political party that has gone off the rails, that has gone to the far, far right. They've continued to do that. They've been doing this now. It didn't just suddenly happen with Donald Trump. They've been doing this now for the past at least 20 years. We have been calling them out on it. Specifically, we have been calling out the media on it because the media has dealt with them as if oh this is just politics as usual they're liberal on that side they're conservative on this side and anyone who says different oh that's because you're a partisan Brad you're a part you're a Democrat Brad no I'm not a Democrat B- media. I'm independent, and I'm pointing out to you, as I have been for the past 20 years, that this is a political party going off the rails. This is not conservatism. This is nothing like conservatism. Stop calling them conservative. Call them right-wingers. Call them Republicans. But they are not conservatives. Anybody who actually was anything resembling conservatives have now sort of left the party and has joined the, you know, the never-Trumpers, if you will, in calling out the Republicans for going off the rails. But, Naomi, uh, one of the uh, points you say, you know, isn't there something we could go after them in one fell swoop? Well, yes, that is what the Voting Rights Act was supposed to be on the federal level until it was gutted by the Supreme Court. That's what the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would try to fix. But uh, that is going to take some time to move through Congress. In the meantime, the House has passed the For the People Act, which actually uh, undoes a, a fair amount of what the Republicans are doing to suppress the vote all over the country. However, we have one senator by the name of Joe Manchin who, A, does not support the For the People Act in the Senate, even though 49 of his uh, his, uh, colleagues do. So without him, they can't get a majority. And even if they got him and a majority, he refuses to reform the filibuster. So you not only have to get Joe Manchin, but you also have to get 10 Republicans somehow. Good luck with that. That's why we got to reform the filibuster, and that's why I don't know somebody's got to do something about Joe Manchin. Uh, anyway, no, Naomi, does that speak to your question? About solutions. What, what's yeah, that? I'm
3: just going to keep thinking about keep keep else, maybe some other tech.
1: Please do, because uh, I realize it's terribly unsatisfying. I spent much of last week asking people, what do we do about Joe Manchin? And uh, a lot of really smart people. Nobody really has an answer yet. Thanks, uh, Naomi. i got to jump here, get to a break. I appreciate the call. 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK. Quick break, and we're back with... More of your calls and more news if I have time straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Brad.
0: bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. we closing few minutes here today. We'd love to hear from you still. 818-985-KPFK. Uh, yeah, last week I spent a lot of time asking people, well, what the hell do we do about Manchin? Because nobody seems to know at this point. While well, he's out there saying he won't support the For the People Act because no Republicans support it. He doesn't seem to have any problem with Republicans passing this vote suppression, uh, these vote suppression uh, uh, rules all over the country. Yes, we are saying lawsuits against them. Yes, in fact, I am a plaintiff in one of them, in one of the Georgia lawsuits, because that law, as people don't know, also restricts my power, my ability to report on elections and election results, as a journalist, it's unbelievable. Uh, we heard from uh, Michael via Michael L via email to Bradcast at Bradblog.com late last week. Said, "I think I know what to do about uh, to do with Senator Joe Ma- uh, Senator Manchin, Chuck Schumer, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate should create a new leadership title of quote bipartisan whip." This way, Manchin can be in charge of gathering the bipartisan votes that he says are needed and Schumer can ask him for periodic progress reports. Michael says, I hope th- I would hope this would be enough to force him to admit that most of the Republican Party has no interest in the bipartisanship that Joe Manchin is dreaming is somehow out there. Is it out there, Joe? Great. You're in charge of it. How many uh, how many Republicans are you going to be able to get to your voting, uh, your election reform? Let me go to uh, Mike in Claremont. Hey, Mike, welcome to the broadcast. What's on your mind, sir?
4: Oh, I just wanted to uh, mention that uh, this is off topic, but Merrick Garland, I heard on the radio, doesn't want to deal with the Trump administration's. Uh, fallout, especially January 6th, he wants to put it behind him. So my question is, Is didn't that screwing that uh, he got from Mitch McConnell, I guess that wasn't enough for him? Well,
1: me. well, no. Let me let me speak to that first part first, Michael. Uh, I I don't know what you heard, who you heard it from on the radio, but I haven't heard any uh, statements along those lines from Merrick Garland. Now, if you said, you know, he probably doesn't want to have to deal with that. I understand he doesn't want to have to deal with it, but the DOJ has uh, rounded up about 500 people uh, on Friday. Merrick Garland said he was going to be doubling the number of uh, of attorneys that were going to be looking at. Voting rights issues and so forth, Uh, and uh, after the news broke that the uh, Trump administration had been subpoenaing secretly subpoenaing the phone, email, and text message records from Democrats like Adam Schiff, uh, that uh, Merrick Garland put the immediately put the Inspector General at the DOJ on top of that issue and says they're reviewing their policies. So I don't know what he wants to do, but I'm not sure it's quite as black and white as you you presented it there, Michael.
4: Well, the, the the reason I, I mentioned it because I heard it on a competing radio station.
1: Well, then
4: somewhat reputable, but not uh-huh. really. That's okay. And, and that, uh, and that he he he's just you know, I don't know why these guys just don't want to do their job. If he can't do his job, yeah, replace him. I hear you. Yeah. Honorable people. Yeah. In government still, I believe.
1: Well, I I hope. I hope you're right, Michael. And I and I hear you. And so I I, because I'm not trying to defend Merrick Garland. I'm trying to explain what we do know do and don't know about him. I, too, have been aggravated as hell. You know, for example, to hear that they're going to uh, continue to go to bat in the case where uh, E. Jean Carroll uh, the The New Yorker writer uh, says that she was raped by Donald Trump uh, several decades ago. Donald Trump came out, said, "Oh, she's not my type. She's a liar, and uh, sued Donald Trump for uh, defamation. The Justice Department under Donald Trump was defending. Donald Trump was trying to replace Donald Trump as the defendant with themselves as if Donald Trump had called her a liar as part of his job as president of the United States. And uh, that was uh, rejected. That notion was rejected. And yet Merrick Garland's DOJ decided a week or so ago to appeal that decision. That is outrageous. So there's plenty to hold them accountable for. Uh, I just want to be careful that we're accurate as we do it, at yeah, least well, he, he on this doesn't station.
4: not want to go after the former DOJ either. Yeah, well... Come on,
1: man. We'll see.
4: I mean, if it was you or me, if it was you or me, they would have hung our asses already.
1: Let's make them. I got to get out, Michael. I'm sorry about that. I appreciate the call, my friend. Uh, Sorry I wasn't able to get to the other folks who had rang rang in. We'll try to do it again soon. Uh, But my thanks to my producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Federico Garcia, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And uh, and thanks, by the way, to everyone who called in. Uh, You can uh, find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. I will see you there until I see you here. Hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.